The holiday season is supposed to be a joyous time, but it can be downright painful for families who lost loved ones in war. Good morning, I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Coming up in just a moment, a Manhattan couple talks about losing their only son in the Afghan war. And later, we'll shine a spotlight on a program designed to help sick and injured U.S. troops and their families. And we'll meet a Westchester man who's doing his part to help stray dogs in war zones. These dogs have absolutely nothing. They're fed well, but they're loaded with parasites. The puppies are loaded with worms. That cityscape from November 29th, 2008. Glad you're with us. It was less than two months ago when Richard and Barbara von Zernick got the news. Their only child, Jason, was killed when his Humvee rolled over in Afghanistan. Despite their loss, the von Zernicks say they're celebrating the holidays. You see, their son left behind three young children. The von Zernicks recently stopped by our studios to share their story with me. Joining me in the studio this morning are Barbara and Richard von Zernick. Their son, Jason, was killed in Afghanistan just about two months ago. October 2nd. Not long ago at all. No. All too close. Now, he was a member of the New York National Guard? Yes, he was a uh, member of the Fighting 69th Infantry Battalion, I believe they're called, and uh, which is a unit of the New York National Guard, and he and several hundred uh, other members of that unit deployed to Afghanistan uh, last this past April. What prompted him to join the National Guard? Jason, all his life was fascinated with the military from the time he was a baby. Always fantasized about it, played with it. You know, the, he was the original G.I. Joe kind of kid playing with those toys. And, uh, and little plastic soldiers he used to play with all the time. He would create war things on the beach, bring his bags of plastic soldiers down to the beach and create these battles by himself. He just, you know, he would go into this fantasy land about that when he was very young. It's always been a a thing with him. Didn't he say he felt like a warrior on the inside? Yes. He came to to understand or to realize that part of him was a warrior. And in talking to other soldiers, career soldiers, and that's only happened since he's passed, that's a common calling, uh, one that we were unfamiliar with. uh, But there are plenty of people out there who that's part of their makeup. And uh, Jason was aware of it did not really satisfy it, and uh, it wasn't until he was 28, 29 with uh, three children living in North Carolina that he realized that he would not be a happy person unless he tried to fulfill that need, and he also felt a very strong uh, pull to defend his country. He was not in favor of the war in any sense. I think if you mentioned George Bush's name to him, he would have spit in your eye. But at the same time, he felt the country needed to be defended, and that was something he felt he was born to do. He also didn't like the way the government treated the soldiers, right? Uh, Yeah. He, uh, at their uh, departure ceremony, he was very vocal. It was interesting. He was uh, quoted in several newspapers, and I think largely, and photographs of him, largely because in the midst of the sea of uh, Hispanic and black Soldiers. There was one one of few white soldiers with a pretty family with kids, and they sought him out for interviews. Uh, And he made the point that uh, America 
really isn't aware of what is going on, and they're certainly not aware of the fact that the war was being fought largely on the backs of uh, poor people of color. And that's what he said to the Times, yes, right? Yes, They quoted him directly. You folks are from Manhattan's Upper West Side. Yeah, we're from the liberal enclave in New York, the Upper West Side. And nobody that we knew, and most of the people in our circle, didn't know anybody who was in the military or really had any connection to the military. I can't tell you how many notes that we got after Jason died about how we're so far removed from this war and from the effects of the war on regular people until they found that they knew somebody who was affected by it the way we were. So you're the exception, not the rule, in your neighborhood. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I would venture to guess, George, that we're the exception, not the rule, throughout, throughout New York. Uh, there aren't all that many soldiers involved in the National Guard. It isn't, the numbers aren't that out, out, uh, outrageous. And so it doesn't really strike home. Uh, and then the government has a way of sort of hiding things, which is another thing that we didn't really realize. Uh, you know, we'd all read, and I'm sure everyone has, how uh, the government doesn't allow you, doesn't allow the media to photograph the bodies when they come home. Well, we saw there is a very strong support group for the families of fallen soldiers, and there is a large contingent of people who honor them. And when our son's body came back from Afghanistan, it was first sent down to Dover, Delaware. That's where all the bodies go. And among other things, they did an autopsy. But when they brought him back to New York, brought his body back to New York, he was flown up on a private plane, and we were brought to a very moving and elaborate reception with an honor guard, uh, military honor guard, a police honor guard, uh, scores of other support groups around us. Uh, but where did they do it? They Because, well, according to the Army, it was easiest to do it out in Islip Airport. As we watched all this happen, we realized that it was done there to keep it away from the general public. If you, if you did this, something like this at uh, LaGuardia or Kennedy, Literally thousands of people would be watching this and it would bring home to them the pain that we were experiencing. Uh, but if you do it out in ice lip in a little corner of the airport, no one sees. Did that make you feel stigmatized at all? At that point, I'm not sure what we were feeling other than grief. Uh, we didn't really think about that until later on. You know, I mean, it was a, it was a very tough day for us. The whole That whole day was very difficult. That was really reality. That was the first reality. And um, so we really didn't think about that then. But afterward, we talked about it. And one of the soldiers who was assigned as a kind of a guide through all this to us said, oh, it's just much easier. We find it's just much easier, less complicated to do it at Islip. And it wasn't until after this whole thing that we realized, sure, it's a lot easier. It's also a lot less public, you know. And I guess these are conversations that you have amongst each other. This is not something that you brought to the government's attention? No, no, no. no. I, you know, when all this is going on, you are truly in shock. And I must say that the support that the Army and the government gives you during this is just wonderful. Uh, my daughter-in-law and her three children were assigned a casualty officer who works with and continues to work with them, helping them through everything, how to get the VA benefits, how to do this, how to do that. We had an officer assigned to us who was really there to uh, 
monitor our emotional health and pick me up when I fell down, that kind of a thing. That's actually very encouraging to hear because you don't know how the families are treated after someone is lost, but that's that's good news. Yes, yes. they really are pretty comforting and they're around you, and some of it is volunteer work, too. There are support groups that are, that are largely volunteers. I was going to say that uh, I wish that the, the guys who come home alive but hurt, injured, either emotionally or physically, get got the same kind of treatment that we get. Uh, it's unfortunate that they don't get the kind of that kind of treatment. Um, you read some horror stories about what goes on with them. And uh, I don't imagine that that's going to change much because it's going to be a long time, especially with post-traumatic stress syndrome. Uh, these guys sometimes go for six months without getting their disability benefits, and that's something that's really terrible, I think. It needs to be addressed, and hopefully maybe with the new administration, it will be. You referenced your daughter-in-law. She's a young widow, 30 years old? 30 years old, mother of three, and uh, it's very hard for Stephanie. She's got three little kids, and she's got to focus on them. What are the ages? Nine, six, and three, and uh, a good thing that's come out of this is, uh, again, because of the support groups, uh, there's a project called... uh, the Soldiers Project. And out of that, each of the kids has been hooked up with a therapist to help them deal with this. Stephanie has gotten uh, hooked up with a therapist. Actually, both Barbara and I have as well. And it's all pro bono. It's done uh, to support the soldiers and their families. I would imagine at this point, much harder for the nine-year-old than the three-year-old, or am I wrong? I don't think the three-year-old really. I mean, first of all, his father was gone for a long time. He knew who his father was, but he was little, little, he was a baby essentially when his father left. So I don't think he understands what's going on at all. He certainly doesn't understand the concept of death. The six-year-old grapples with it. He understands it, but he's, he's angry and he's troubled and he's got a lot of fears. And, and the nine-year-old, interestingly enough, is very, I don't even know how to say it. She just doesn't keep it, let it out. She hasn't shed a tear yet. Mm. You know she's hurting, but she just has been unable to let that come out yet. How did Jason die? Let me preface this by saying that we have not yet received the official report. As I understand it, whenever there's a death, they do an investigation to really pin down exactly what happened. And and we will get, sometime in the near future, a sit-down with a colonel who will present us all the details. Uh, But essentially, from what we know, he was in a uh, convoy, a logistical convoy. They weren't off to to a battle, although the area they were in, there were a lot of problems, a lot of casualties, and a lot of uh, several deaths and a lot of incidents. But uh, something went awry. The convoy was interrupted by other vehicles. Perhaps they thought they were uh, unfriendlies. I'm not sure. But... Jason was driving, which was unusual. He's no, he was normally the gunner, but because this was a, a non-combat thing, he was driving, and uh, they were on a road with a steep cliff on one side and a uh, minefield on the other, and for some reason they had to take evasive action, and the uh, Humvee actually turned over. And uh, as we understand it, he was crushed and died relatively quickly, but we'll know better after this, after we get the report. I would imagine you want to know that he didn't suffer. Yeah, but unfortunately, we're beginning to 
find that, yes, he did, that he didn't die right away as we were initially told. But we'll know more. We'll know the details. They'll give us the autopsy report. It's not anything we're looking forward to. No. But, but we do want to know the, you know the details. I do and I don't. You know, we have we have images in our heads, both of us do. I'm sure they're relatively similar also of that. It's a recurring thing that I would prefer not to see, but, you know, that's one of the things that happens. But we did hear from somebody who gave Stephanie, our daughter-in-law, a very brief summary, um, and, and they did say that he was conscious for a, a time anyway. Did anyone uh, survive that incident? Everybody but him. Yeah. The, uh, as a matter of fact, we met at least one of the other, I think there were four in the Humvee and at uh, the service, the memorial service for Jason. We met a young man, Miguel Ramos, if I remember correctly, 20, 21-year-old kid. I shouldn't say kid, but anyone under 40 is a kid to me. <laughs> uh, arm in a sling with his parents. And he came to us, and he essentially broke down, and his parents broke down, and he, he credited Jason with saving his life. And the other guys in the, in the truck as well. And from that conversation and from conversation with a couple of the other members of his company who came, we got a real good picture of what Jason was like there. He was older than the typical soldier, and they considered him a father figure. I understand that Jason was a big Yankees fan. Yeah, a diehard Yankee fan, a diehard Ranger fan, and a diehard Dallas Cowboys yeah. fan. <laughs> Much to his father's chagrin. I he won't was hold a... that against him. <laughs> Do you have other children, or was Jason an only child? Only child. Now we have three children. We have three grandchildren. And we have, have a, daughter. a daughter. Fortunately. We have a very good relationship with our daughter-in-law. I know that Jason was a big music lover. Oh, yeah. If we could play a song for Jason right now, what song would you want that to be? <laughs> well, it's interesting. It would have to be Pink Floyd because that's the only music that Jason listened to that I could listen to. He, uh, His tastes in music were very different from ours. From the time he was a teenager, he was into heavy metal and and progressed from there. Yeah, I don't, we didn't really communicate on that level. But he, he did love Pink Floyd. So how are you folks preparing to get through the holidays? With great difficulty. I'll tell you the truth, if it wasn't for the, for the fact that we have three young grandchildren, we might not be doing very much. But I, I, we, we all feel that it's very important not to take those things away from them. And I guess ultimately it will make it a brighter time for us as well because we're going to be with them. But we'll get through it. What, what alternative do we have? You know, We'll just make it as pleasant, as enjoyable as possible for the children, and that's how we'll get through it. If you find that there are so many uh, things that bring back memories, Wednesday would have been their eighth anniversary. Ninth anniversary. Ninth anniversary. And day before that or two days before that, Stephanie received all his possessions from Afghanistan and had to inventory them, and you know, she said she couldn't sleep that night. It's just too painful. And uh, there are just a lot of things, a lot of things that bring back memories that should be pleasant, but they're not. They're bittersweet at best. And you never know when something is going to trigger a, a, a memory or a feeling or a thought. It just comes on you like out of the blue. 
And I would imagine that that's going to happen for a long time. I don't think that's going to go away, if ever. You know, it'll be dulled. The pain will be dulled, I'm sure. But there is a big hole which will never be filled. Well, Barbara and Richard von Zernick, I want to thank you so much for coming in and sharing your story with us. And we will get some Pink Floyd on now in honor of Jason. Thank you so much. Thank you, George. It's been a pleasure. The von Zernicks are members of WFUV and frequently volunteer during the station's fun drives. Our thoughts are with them this holiday season. Tune to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm George Boldarki. Next on Cityscape, we turn our attention to what a Westchester County man is doing to help stray dogs in war zones. Michael Kennedy started his unique drive after hearing a story told by his brother, a civilian police advisor working overseas. I'm trying to raise money uh, for stray dogs in Afghanistan. There are uh, a number of stray dogs in various military and police complexes that are acting as sentry dogs or explosive detection dogs Um, without any training. These are dogs that are just taken care of by the people in the complex and are protecting their territory, so they bark or will alert when anybody enters the perimeter, or they'll leave the complex or act differently when an explosive device is nearby, and that has consistently been saving lives, uh, including my brother's, uh, a number of years ago. I was going to say, this is an effort that's very near and dear to your heart. Tell us about your brother's experience. When he was uh, stationed in Iraq, he's, he's in Afghanistan right now as a police advisor. He's a retired police NYPD sergeant. And when he was in Iraq, uh, his second day in the Green Zone, he was uh, staying in the Al Sadir Hotel. It was one of the hotels that were seized uh, by the U.S. during the, the takeover and put inside the Green Zone. And his second day there, he was standing in the complex and he noticed that the stray dogs that were roaming around the complex started running out the front gate. And he thought that was suspicious enough that he should go up and get his weapon and maybe some more ammunition from his room. And when he did that, and when he got to his room, there was a 2,500-pound truck bomb that had been snuck in in a garbage truck into the complex that exploded and left a 30-foot crater near where he was standing. 
That's pretty remarkable that these dogs are saving lives. They don't even know it. Well, basically, they're saving lives by saving their own lives. It's just a survival instinct on their part. They run when they smell explosives. They've certainly learned that the smell of nitrates, which is the main component in any explosive, is a bad thing. So when a car pulls up to a checkpoint that has a bomb in it, they'll run from that car. They're not trained explosive detection dogs that will sit or key in a bomb. But certainly the guards at the checkpoint know to watch the dogs. And if the dogs act strangely, that will alert them that they need to be suspicious of the vehicles in that line. Has there been an increase in strays because of the conflict? My brother said just the earthquake in Pakistan just uh, a number of weeks ago increased the population of his strays by about five. They came running out of the hills and the mountains after the earthquake. And so certainly, yeah, they're looking for refuge. Um, There are a lot of people that have been displaced and didn't take their animals. So there are a tremendous amount of stray animals because of the conflict out there. The military, though, of course, has their own dogs over there, I would imagine. Yes, the military has a number of dogs over there that do great work every day, and those dogs have multi-million dollar veterinary hospitals that they go to for the most minor things, for basic services, for parasite control, for their vaccinations, and if they're injured, these dogs have absolutely nothing. They're fed, they're fed well, and they're taken care, they're well taken care of, but they're loaded with parasites. The puppies are loaded with worms. The pictures that my brother sent me of the puppies in his compound, you can see they're absolutely adorable puppies, but you can see that their bellies are bloated, and that is because they're loaded with worms. So we're trying to get money for to buy parasite control products, worming products, simple antibiotics for infections that the dogs develop from hot spots from fleas or even minor shrapnel injuries that are infected. Well, once you send those products to Afghanistan, then who then administers them to the dogs. We're developing a network. There are people in every military complex that take care of these dogs. The Kurdish guards um, are the main ones, the main caretakers of the dogs. And my brother is out there, and he has been distributing not only in his compound, but other compounds. He's developing a network to supply and people to treat these dogs. There's more than enough people that are willing to do the work out there but they don't have the supplies to do it. How has the effort been going so far? The effort's been going well. The the article, there was an article in the Journal News about it, and that helped tremendously. We were able to help the dogs in my brother's complex, but we're sort of stalled past that, and I'd like to expand it. This scenario is repeated in every military complex, every police complex throughout Afghanistan, and I'd like to expand it past just my brother's complex. This morning, we're at the Tuckahoe Animal Hospital in Westchester County. Now, these folks stepped up quite quickly, right? Yes. Actually, it was uh, Dr. Maglino, who's the owner of the animal hospital, was his initial idea. He made the initial donation, and he suggested that we help more than just the dogs in that complex, that, you know, make it more than just a one-time thing and see if we can get a consistent supply to be shipped over there. So who are you reaching out to, mainly veterinarians? Who else? The general public, if you have, besides financial donations, if you have any old medications or flea supplies sitting in your cabinet that you can give us, local animal hospitals are pulled, consistently pull 
expired medications off their shelves, antibiotics mainly, and they've been great in giving us those because they're expired just by a number of days, so it doesn't affect their potency, and it helps these dogs tremendously. Now, I would imagine that you would also like to expand this to Iraq if you can, if it became that big. Well, we're trying. My brother also has connections in Iraq, but you know we're we're taking baby steps at this point. It would be great if we could do Afghanistan and Iraq and every other war zone country. But uh, if we can get just the main military complexes in Afghanistan right now, that would be fantastic. So, Michael, if people want to help out, how can they go about doing that? Well, they can contact me uh, at uh, 914-262-2120 or my email at mkennedy at kennedycanine.net or drop stuff off directly at the animal hospital. The animal hospital address is 20 Depot Square, Tuckahoe, New York, 10707. Michael, best of luck. Thank you very much. With thousands of U.S. troops returning from overseas sick or injured, a New York City family is doing what they can to help. The Fisher family owns the well-established real estate firm Fisher Brothers. The firm has started a foundation to help GIs and their families. Kenneth Fisher heads the foundation and is also a third-generation executive in the family firm. The Fisher House Foundation was born back in uh, 1990, after the uh, first Gulf War, just as it was wrapping up. When it was brought to my uncle Zachary Fisher, who founded the program, when it was brought to his attention that there was a shortage of affordable housing for families of sick or injured personnel. Clearly a lot of people, especially now, coming back from overseas sick and injured. Yes, there are. The uh, battlefield survivor rate is over 95 percent. So the good news is, is that these men and women are living. The bad news is is that they're coming back catastrophically injured. And clearly families want to be as close as possible to their loved ones as they get treatment. Well, we believe that families are part and parcel to a successful recovery. I always describe it as though, could you imagine being in the hospital just with a regular kind of an illness and not having your family there to visit you? And, you know, in this case, you've got people coming back who have been catastrophically wounded And they're coming back to a place they've never been to before. And then the families have to come and they don't know what's around. They, in many cases, can't afford to stay in a hotel room for long periods of time. The foundation builds houses for families to stay in. That's correct. What we do is is we work in partnership with the government. The government gives us the land. Fisher House then will build the house and then it will gift the house to whichever branch of the military they serve or the Veterans Administration. They, in turn, will staff the house. They'll maintain the house going forward. So we don't have to essentially fundraise for the maintenance of the house, which can become very costly. We can now go to another project and not have to worry about how the houses are going to be operated. So the homes are then primarily being built on the campuses of medical facilities, VA facilities? Both VA and DOD. The houses are within walking distance, so families not only have a place to stay without obviously bearing that cost, but there's no transportation costs because they can walk to the hospital. How big are these homes? Well, when the program began, the homes were between six to eight rooms. When the needs started to grow, we expanded the house size to about 11 rooms. But now, in many cases, the load being handled by the hospitals and the VA hospitals have grown to the point where we have actually had to increase the size of the houses 
presently the new design is 16,000 feet and 20 rooms. And how many families does a house like that accommodate? The houses can accommodate minimum of 40. And again, depending on, you know, who comes with the, uh, the mother, the father, or the wife, or the husband, can accommodate children as well. Do the houses offer individual apartments, or is there shared space, like a common kitchen? The houses right now have the suites, 20 rooms, 20 bedrooms. The beauty part of the house, though, is is that there are common areas. There's common dining. There's common kitchen, obviously. There's common seating, living room and, and uh, family room type of an atmosphere. What this does is it helps the families interact. So what's happened in the houses is something that was a byproduct, which was the families now support each other. It's a support system. When and where was the first house built? The first house was built at Bethesda the Bethesda Naval Hospital down in uh, Maryland. How many are there now? Well, now there's 42, and we're going to open the 43rd house in Los Angeles in February. How many families have you helped overall since you started? George, since the birth of the program, we estimate that it is close to 120,000 families. Now, where do you get the bulk of the funding to do this? Is it largely through private donations? Largely. We do get government grants. Congress has been very good to us in terms of giving us uh, grants to help us do this mission. But the generosity of the American public is making all of us look good. Kenneth Fisher, thank you so much for coming in. It was a pleasure, George. Thank you. For more information about the Fisher House Foundation, check out fisherhouse.org. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Borarki. My thanks to producer McCall Neria. Have a great weekend.